0: KYW original podcasts.
1: This is the Flashpoint podcast. I'm Flashpoint host, Cherry Gregg. We are walking you through the flames. This week, the focus is August 25th, 1619. The first recorded date of arrival of Africans in British colonial America. Those 20 men and women marked the start of 400 years of history of Africans in what is now the United States. We
2: have helped to perfect this democracy.
3: When white people went out to California as 49ers to get gold, we were enslaved. I look back at the impact of slavery. And what about reparations? We dig in. A
1: Philadelphia lawyer is getting death threats after helping his client surrender. Nobody died. That is now apparently worthy of my crucifixion and death. The impetus of the hate and what the gunman told his former attorney from prison. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is August 25th, 1619. The first recorded arrival of Africans enslaved in British colonial America. Those 20 men and women took the middle passage from what is now Angola. They mixed and mingled to expand into generations of African American people in these American lands. So... What is their legacy? And would America be America without the first 20? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Malefe Asante. He's professor and chair of the Department of Africology and African American Studies at Temple University. He's also author of 85 books, including 400 Years of Witnesses. We also have Erin Haynes. She's national race writer for the Associated Press. And finally, on the phone, we have Dr. Marion Lane, a member of the National Society of the Daughters of American Revolution. She traced her ancestry back the African landing in 1619. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint.
2: Thanks for having thank us. Thank
4: you.
1: Professor, I want to start with you. Provide us with the story of the original landing of the first Africans. In- yes, Sherry, Sherry, thank you very much. Yes.
3: I'm really delighted to be here. The history of the United States of America it does not really begin until we have an understanding of the African presence. In fact, it is the African presence that makes Uh, the United States of America, what it is today. So I want to just lay that out first of all. But when the uh, first uh, 20 Africans arrived in uh, 1619 at Point Comfort in Virginia, this was a a very interesting uh, beginning for a journey that has taken us this far, 2019, 400 years, in the cauldron of American racism. So I start with the fact that uh, the 20 Africans were probably taken from Angola. They came with their African names. They came with their African rituals, their African philosophies. They came with the skills that they brought from, uh, uh, from Africa. And then, of course, in America, uh, after um, landing in Point Comfort, Virginia, uh, that population uh, Uh, actually has now expanded to over 40 million people. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, you know, the journey from Virginia to throughout the United States. Now, of course, Africans were here before that, Mm -hmm. and Africans were also uh, enslaved before that, because after all, when Columbus uh, came uh, uh, to uh, the Caribbean, uh, then soon after that, Uh, Within 10 years, you had Africans in the Caribbean and also in Brazil. So uh, the enslavement of Africans was a major part of the creation of the personality of the United States of America. And from the very beginning, white racial domination and white racial supremacy defined the scope of the American experience. I'm going to jump to
1: Aaron here because we're going to juxtapose... The original landing here to what we're dealing with right now. There's been a lot that has happened since then that has never been acknowledged. When you talk about uh, African people in this country, and could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Oh, absolutely! Uh, and thank you so much for having me, Cherry. So uh, we know that slavery is the original sin of, of, of this country. Uh, has been here since uh, the founding, and really, it's so interesting to be. You know here in Philadelphia, we talk about this city as being kind of the cradle of, of our democracy, but really central to our origin story is those twenty uh, Africans who, mm-hmm. who arrived here uh, in sixteen nineteen so you really can't even talk about the the beginnings of America without talking about about sixteen nineteen and the legacy of slavery, which is still with us today uh, as we know and so the fact that we have not reckoned with that shows up in our society in many ways uh you know we know about racial disparities across education, across housing. Uh, You name it in in our society, there are many ways uh, in which we are still unequal that can be traced back to slavery. And, you know, so an acknowledgement of of that harm, of of that pain, of that trauma uh, that was done to Africans who then became uh, Americans, frankly, uh, in this country has has not been fully acknowledged. There has not uh, been a full apology or or really a a reckoning of of our, our full history Uh, A lot of times, you know, we we like to to talk about kind of the story of the founding fathers. But but when it comes to trying to discuss slavery, uh, that's something that that we need to move on uh, from. That's a history that we need to move past. But in doing that, we we really are not dealing with uh, a lot of issues that that linger uh, 400 years later.
1: Yeah. And one of the big things that I've seen um, and want to bring Dr. Lane in here is that there's always this separation saying that that happened generations ago. we These people who are alive now have no connection to those people from years ago. That's ancient history. That's ancient <laughs> history. That's generations. We, we don't even know. We're not alive. The people alive, the white folks alive have nothing to do with that. Right. But Dr. Lane has a, been able to create the link from herself to those original 20.
5: Correct. And it's interesting when you begin to trace your family, it's not an easy thing to do. Because you realize for each generation, okay, the generation after you doubles in terms of your parents, your grandparents, okay? Each generation doubles. And when you trace back 14 generations, I trace back to Margarita, who Mm. was one of the original Africans that arrived at Point Comfort. That's amazing. And she was pregnant when she arrived, and she had her first child, John Gawin, um... Upon arrival, and then she had uh, my direct descendant, um, Emmanuel Cambu, um, uh, in 1630, okay? So these were half-brothers. When I trace back to her, with me being the first generation, she is the 14th generation. And that gives me 8,192 lines to search. Jeez. So tracing your family history is an a very intricate job and you wind up not with a family tree, you wind wind up with a family reef because many of these people settled in the same areas and they walked to find a mate. So it's very interesting to find
1: that out. Dr. Charles Bloxon, one of uh, the most prolific historical scholars when it comes to African American history, has co-signed on Dr. Lane's uh, research here. And so, um, Professor, Uh, Could you jump back in here because uh, I want you to kind of tie this link between 1619 to today. There's a lot that happened in between there.
3: It gives us chills, actually, to hear her talk about that because that is an incredible story. It's not necessarily the story of the majority of us. Mm -hmm. I I was born in Georgia, and I think my family can go back five generations, and that's it, and then it's lost for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. The Civil War itself the destroyed records, uh, the, the, the great uh, number of Africans who have white paternity. Mm. Uh, there are many, many problems. But Bloxson, of course, has been very uh, significant uh, in trying to put all of these pieces together. And one of the things that I would say is that uh, more than 100 different African nations or ethnic groups uh, were brought to the Americas. And that means that people came from Yorubai, uh, Wolof, Tree, Asante, Ewe, Ga, Congo, uh, Angola, many, many, many different nations to the, uh, to the United States. And in the uh, mixture of all of these people, then you get out of that uh, uh, mixture— the the African-American, which is also in many respects a specific African ethnic community, Mm -hmm. you see? So whether we, I mean, in Brazil, we have the Afro-Brazilians, in Mexico, uh, we have the Mm Afro-Mexicans, Peru, Colombia, Jamaica. We have all these African ethnic groups that have recombined, in a sense, in the Americas so that this history... Of the beginning and the history to now is a uh, is is a composite one, but it's an extensive history, a very comprehensive one. So, and it's almost yeah. like
1: there's a new. It was a new type of person formed from the mixture of all these different people that came together I, 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 in America.
3: I, yeah, I, I would say I would say so. Yes, I mean, after all, uh, ethnic groups are always forming and mm. reforming historically. Uh, because of uh, various reasons. I mean, and then you, you, you get new people. And, and, and of course, the African-American community is in, in many ways the quintessential American population because it, we have combined and recombined with many different people yeah. from different ethnic groups and different racial groups. Native American, yeah. And, you know, so, so that is the—I I mean, and, and that's why I say it's quintessential because I don't think that—I mean, you, you could— if you are a Korean American, you are a Korean American. If you had African ancestry, you wouldn't be considered yeah. uh, Korean American, that kind of thing. You, But a Korean person who has uh, ancestors that, that's African or uh, could be accepted in the African American community as just an Afro-Korean or a Korean who is, who is part yeah. of the African American community. So that went on whether it was with – uh, the Hauser, or with the Fulani, or with the Mandingo, with with all of these African ethnic groups, these recombinations, and of course, all Africans didn't speak the same language. Yeah, don't uh, don't pray to the same uh, ancestors. Uh, don't have the same rituals. Uh, the, the, this was an incredible uh, 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 a creation. In fact, the genius of our music and the genius of our speech. I think rest on the fact that we uh, were able to combine all of these various African elements mm-hmm. and and lay them on a template that was structurally perhaps the same. you see
1: and it, it gives so me chills in a way to think about the unique combination that is creates african-american people
3: the african-american population is extremely yeah. diverse yeah. it is very diverse yeah. and
1: and so do i want to you know kind of switch gears a little bit could this country have been what it is aaron without the free labor that the african people provided
2: oh absolutely not i would posit that it's even more than than free labor that, that uh, black people have given to america um I, we know that obviously uh, the brutality of slavery uh, built this country But even more than that, uh, what we have contributed to this country in terms of the cultural contribution that we have given, you know, our service to this country in so many different ways. We have helped to perfect this democracy, you know, in in so many ways. We have made the founding ideals of this country more true and more real uh, with every generation, even as they were denied to us and and, and people sought to to keep them from us uh, even to this day. Black people have given a lot, a lot to this country, uh, which uh, is really what is probably the most interesting thing to me about the reparations argument, because you would think that as much as we have given the thought that, that we would ask to be compensated in just a small way, because you can never be fully compensated for the horrors of
4: slavery, Ever. Yeah. Uh,
2: but, but to ask to be compensated in even a small way uh, is, is is a conversation that is a non-starter for a lot of Americans, uh, which is which is really remarkable, and and I think speaks to, like I said, a lack of understanding about what is owed or what could be owed, and to whom. Even though obviously, there's nobody living today who you know was toiling under the slavery that that ended in 1865, and there's nobody living today who who would have owned anybody who who uh, was doing that labor. Uh, but that is not to say that there are people who do not still benefit from that, yeah. just as there are people who still suffer from it.
1: Because a lot of people still had that wealth, that original wealth that thing. was built during, millionaires were built yes. on the backs
2: of black Entire people institutions. brought
1: to this this nation
2: and enslaved. Universities, banks. I mean, you think about the major yeah. um, financial and, and other um, institutions of wealth in this country, that uh, still exist right yeah, now. Yeah. Exactly, a lot of them uh, can tie their roots to slavery.
1: And Dr. Lane, your family—you traced your family's contributions to a number of major events in American history.
5: I had two grandfathers that um, were patriots of the American Revolution. Isaac Brown, who was enlisted at seventeen years of age, and made a sergeant who also served under George Washington at Valley Forge. And um, uh, he was uh, a mustered in Virginia, uh, in Charles City, by John Tyler, Sr., okay? And then I had Abraham Brown, who donated beef to the Continental Line, and he's my second patriot. And um, then I had another grandfather who served in the War of 1812, um, and uh, my father's father um, worked on ships during World War I, and my father served in World War II. He was on the front lines um, for uh, 36 months during World War II. But also, on my mother's family, my mother's line, her father's brothers and sisters served in the White House for 77 years, the Ficklin family. My first uncle was, great uncle, was hired in 1939, and he hired his brother, who became Mater D in the White House for 43 years, John Ficklin, and my last cousin retired under President Obama, John Rory Ficklin, uh, in January of uh, 2016, and he was special assistant to the president for national security.
2: There is no more American story than, <laughs> than, than your, the story of your family. <laughs> I mean, you're more That's American it. than most people
5: who claim in America right now. Oh, absolutely. Then Trump, but yeah. believe it or not, <laughs> I mean, when yeah. we begin to help others trace their family line, they will have these amazing stories, too. And I believe this is how we can correct the history that our children are learning in school.
1: This is a great point for transition because it's almost like the history of slavery. This history, we didn't even talk about the oppression, post-slavery oppression, Mm -hmm. and the terrorism, and the brutality, and the killing uh, that took place. It's like hidden beneath the surface. Like It's almost like we can't really have an honest conversation about it. and, And what would it do? We're trying to do it now, but what would it do, Professor?
3: I think there's great fear that if we really knew the story, if the country knew the story of America, there, people think that, oh boy, the, there would be so much hatred, there would be so much tension. But the point of the matter is that if you don't tell the truth, and if you don't get the information out, then people walk around and, uh, in ignorance, and they do ignorant things. I, I often think if we were not here, this would be a very boring country. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, it's basically like when you go to Brazil, and you in Brazil and say, what's the difference between Brazil and Portugal? It's the Africans. It's the African presence there. So we have brought so many things that sometimes are intangible to this country. But you're perfectly right when you start talking about uh, the reparations. When you look at the fact that supposedly— uh, white wealth is like $170,000 per mm-hmm. family, mm-hmm. while black wealth is about 17000 or less per family. When you start thinking about that, and you say, how did it get that way? It didn't get that way because white people are smarter than we are, because they're not. It didn't get that way because somehow black people don't work, because we do work and we are hard workers. So how did it get that way? It got that way... From the very beginning, in 1849, when white people went out to California as 49ers to get gold, where were African people? We were enslaved in the cotton fields, in the tobacco fields. Were we allowed to go run out to California and get gold? Even before that, were we allowed to own the land, all of the land that white people got up? It was against before, the law. Yeah, it was against the law. For you we to couldn't own even land. Read, we we couldn't, couldn't even read. read. Yeah, they, we yeah. couldn't be taught to read or write. Yeah. And so by 1865, the end of the Civil War, and there were 4.5 million African people, were we given our 40 acres and a mule? No. So here we are, a destitute people who had have, who have been dispossessed not just of our of ourselves because we were dispossessed of ourselves we didn't own ourselves we were chattel it, and then not only were we dispossessed of ourselves our bodies and our minds we were dispossessed of our labor because our labor was stolen from us for 246 years so why is this country different from Mexico or from Any uh, other country, Albania or Hungary, why is it different? It is different because millions of Africans worked for free for 246 years. And as long as we've been in this country, we have been – we were enslaved much longer than we have been free.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, technically, just because people were free – Then it went through a whole generations of oppression Uh, and terrorism. Legalized. Yeah, legalized. And so you attended the hearings on reparations, Erin, which was monumental. A lot of people felt like that was a move forward. But it doesn't seem like the issue of reparations will ever be teed up to to make anything really happen. Explain why.
2: Well, it's interesting. You know, with this 400th anniversary of of enslaved uh, Africans arriving to this country— uh, there does seem to be a moment where this is a conversation that has become much more mainstream. Uh, the 400th anniversary coinciding with the 2020 mm-hmm. election has brought up the conversation of reparations into the 2020 campaign, which is yes. something that I did not expect to yes. see happening in this cycle. Usually, you know, conversations about reparations are, are kind of relegated to, to comedy skits or kind of a fringe uh, groups that want to want to discuss this issue. But you have major presidential candidates saying that they do support uh, some form of reparations, not necessarily direct payments, but but a conversation uh, that explores what is owed and to whom and how that should be uh, how, how that should be uh, allocated uh, to folks. And so, I did attend the reparations hearing. It was held on Juneteenth of all days yes. uh, this, this year. What the hearing was for was was literally just a bill that would commission a study mm. to explore. The possibility of reparations. They're not trying to, you know, create legislation that that would cut checks to black people tomorrow. It's it's to really just start a conversation to say, okay, what is the debt, and then who should benefit from from that, you know, that payment uh, if if there were to be one. I mean, yeah. you know, we don't we don't know the full damage of slavery. We have never even attempted to calculate the full damage of slavery in America, and so a study. To at least begin to figure out, like, what could that number even be? Like, we don't know what that number is. That, that, and so that's step one. And that, and that's really, we haven't even been able to get that far as a country up to this point It's 2019.
3: That's, that's wild. It. And I think Aaron's point should be underscored, too, because um, when, jo- when, when John Conyers, Congressman John, uh, John Conyers mm. introduced that in 1989, HR, 30 years. H- yeah, HR 40, everyone thought that it was really a bill to bring about reparations. But actually the bill is to commission a study to see what the impact has been on African-Americans. But he cannot – and so uh, now it's passed over to Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. Yes, And they cannot even get the Congress to agree to study it. Can you imagine that? Well, you
2: ha- you have you have the House Speaker <laughs> saying that she is in support of of, of yeah. HR forty, but then you have Senate Majority Leader McConnell saying, you know, who would we pay? Where would we start? Yeah, despite the fact that we know that he has slave owners in his own family, right. yeah.
1: And then this and this is sort of like underscores the reason why I think that Dr. Lane had to do what she had That's to do. What are you hoping people take from your journey, Dr. Lane?
5: What I would like to have to see as part of the study is a comparison of the schools in our urban areas, Mm. okay, with the schools in our suburban areas. For example, just I I grew up in Philadelphia. If we took two of the high schools, John Bartram High and South Philadelphia High, Mm. and compared those two schools with two schools in Central Bucks, Central Bucks East and Central Bucks West, and Two schools in the council rock school district here where i near where i live the south council rock north and council rock south and you did a comparison of the quality of programs and education that the children are getting today this is happening yes you would be amazed at mm-hmm. the differences Okay, many of these high schools now in our urban areas don't even have libraries. How do we expect our children to be able to compete, even doing something about the debt? Those who manage to get to college or some degree of higher education training, those who manage to get that, when they finish, they are so far in debt. Yeah, That they can't pull themselves out. It makes you wonder. Yeah, is the structure designed to do this as it was back in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And and
2: not not only that, I mean, you know, they may grad. You know, they overcome obstacles to finish college and then get a job where they're paid less than white men and women uh, have to. uh, If they're able to buy a home. You know, maybe uh, they face some barriers in getting a loan for that home and were forced to move into a neighborhood that, uh, you know, where their home is valued at less than than what a similar home would be valued for in a white neighborhood, and it just goes on and on and on. And if one
1: thing happens, you lose everything.
3: Yeah, and yet I always emphasize, too, uh, the great uh, resilience, uh, nobility uh, of the African uh, person in this country. No other group of people that I can think of who, who confronted such incredible odds over, for such a long period of time, and yet through cleverness, through the ability to uh, be flexible and to sort of understand psychologically the situation we were in, yes. we were able to, to survive and to flourish in cases I mean, I mean, I I, mean, I, I, I look at uh, you know the Associate Press's writer here, and I'm like, wow. I mean, <laughs> how did how do you come up through and, and and do this? How do you how do you do this? It, you just, do this given all of the, uh, the. I mean, I, I'm at the university, and universities have a lot of racism. Too, I saw, so, I heard protests oh no, oh no, for you. Oh yeah, they're, they're pro, <laughs> Yeah, they're pro, they're, they're, there's a lot of racism. At universities, mm-hmm. so I mean, and, and if it's not, uh, if it's not on the surface, it's below the surface. surface yeah, so that uh, you wonder why is it that certain people advance and other people do not?
1: Because this is flashpoint. I do have to wrap this up. This has been a it's, riveting no, this is too short. discussion. This has been a 400 riveting years. discussion. Four hundred years, we could <laughs> literally talk about this all day. So I want to ask you this final question: How can Americans use this opportunity, the commemoration of 400 years of the African landing to finally force this country to acknowledge its racist foundation and the black presence in this country, and then take it farther to step two, possibly.
3: I just simply say one thing. We have to keep talking and we have to talk louder.
2: I would say I, I definitely echo that. And, and uh, thankfully the New York times magazine has given us a fantastic vehicle to do that. Uh, my friend, And colleague in this work, Nicole Hannah-Jones, has shepherded an amazing uh, body of work uh, commemorating 1619 in the magazine, which uh, debuted last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's going to be podcasts around that, but there's a full digital uh, portfolio for people who want to explore and who really do want to learn more and and learn what they didn't get, frankly, in school. They can learn about this history and and keep the conversation going.
1: Awareness is one. And finally, Dr. Lane, final word.
5: I would encourage um, people to research their family history and document it and begin that process because this is a way to get the accurate information um, historically about your family that you would have to pass on to the next generation.
1: Thank you to Professor Malefe Asante. Thank you to Erin Haynes. And thank you to Dr. Marion Lane for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank Thank you.
0: Next up, he helped convince his former client to surrender after a standoff with police. Some people feel that the message should have been sent. If you resist violently in this particular way, we put you down. A Philly lawyer discusses the backlash he suffered for saving a life. We'll be right back.
1: Hey, guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast and feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks, all. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And one thing that gets residents hot under the collar is shooting at police. Now, attorney, Shaka Johnson, made headlines when he helped police convince 36-year-old Maurice Hill to surrender peacefully after a nearly eight-hour standoff where Hill allegedly shot six officers. But not everyone is happy about the peaceful resolution. Shaka, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank
0: you. Thank you for having me.
1: So first of all, how have the last 10 days been for you?
0: This is unlike, you know, I thought I had an event for life prior to the last (laughs) 10 days. And that showed me I should have been thankful, you know, quite frankly, because the last 10 days have been a whirlwind um, for a variety Mm -hmm. of, of reasons. Obviously... Dealing with uh, Maurice, the Maurice Hill situation Mm -hmm. and managing, you know, all of my clients in the balance. You know, I'm not letting anything go uh, unchecked, undone
4: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and still trying to be a husband and a father, you know, and not trying to abandon those roles, you know, for too long. And so it's been it's been uh, trying. You
1: were on basically every news channel
0: so I hear. So I hear <laughs> because in the moment you can't appreciate any of it, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's what I hear. Though I, I've gotten calls as far as uh, the Philippines. I've gotten calls from the Bahamas from folks I know. Like you know, we're watching you on the on the TV. So mm-hmm. who knew? I, I certainly didn't.
1: This week alone, we heard Commissioner Richard Ross, yes. who was on the phone with you That's during correct. the whole negotiations. He right. resigned. He retired. I, I
0: Your mean, reaction it took me for. I'm saddened by it. You know, principle myself on being a person. This is an adversarial system I'm in. Yeah, right? I am in an adversarial system, and I recognize who was on the other side of the proverbial aisle for me. And that is usually the prosecutor's office and the police. And then the last week we have been bedfellows, you know, which is a very strange place for me. And so I had an up close and personal view of uh, the chief commander, the chief commanders, I'll say. And the word that I have used uh, over and over for the past week or so to define my interaction with Mm -hmm. Commissioner Ross Mm -hmm. has been classy, a class act. Don't know what the man has going on in his personal yeah. life, but a class act and a professional, the consummate professional. That was my experience with him.
1: So when you heard, you were like, well, I like, think what, everybody.
0: Like, what I mean, so when you, when you in your mind, you, okay, we came from Chief Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, and then they got uh, a homegrown, right? They got someone homegrown, hand-selected, mm-hmm. and it seemed to have been going well.
1: Especially tr- after he was called the best commissioner in the nation. That's
0: correct. And things things seemed to have yeah. been going well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he was at the forefront of a standoff that didn't end in any additional bloodshed, no deaths. And then the following week, you know, you resigned very abruptly. Yeah. Um. And it sort of puts a lot of speculation in mm-hmm. uh, in play. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it probably undeserved, quite frankly.
1: Yeah. And so you think back, you were, before all of that happened, um, you were working with him That's- to save Lives, basically,
0: and and to be you know that certainly wasn't my thought you know and we're out here saving lives that wasn't my thought. I had one individual in mind, to be perfectly frank, at the outset. Mm-hmm. At the outset, and the longer it went, and you have more time to think, you're like, wait a minute, this could this could really go very left, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have the benefit of preparing myself for having received that phone call to think things out. And a lot of people heard this story, you
1: know, at least. Uh, I would say um, clips of the story, um, and you were chilling, watching everything unfold. Yes, at, like I, you know, we were all watching. We're like, yes. oh my
0: god! And then next thing you know, you're thrust in the middle. That is exactly right. I, my phone rang, and uh, uh, in in that moment, by answering the phone, I was just uh, there. I am. I'm, I'm in the middle of it. I'm on the FBI's phone. I'm on. I'm I'm right there in the middle of it by answering yeah. the phone. And um, and so you're thinking while you're talking, right? You're trying to navigate yeah. this very unfamiliar territory um, and not mess things up.
4: Yeah,
1: and you didn't. You didn't mess it, it up.
0: But 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 it's in the moment, right? So yeah. there's no script, there's no playbook. I had nobody who was there on my side with me, coaching me through, like you know, say this or say that. You know, it was just on the fly for me. What do I think? Uh, what would I? What What would work for me? Like what? What would somebody say mm-hmm. to me? Perhaps to get out of my own head, my children, my my family, you know, I just was talking like I thought a person ought to be talked to like a human being. Yeah. And you had known Maurice Hill from before. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is really the which gave me all the tools that I had. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the my equipment box, knowing him. Uh, having people in common, I know his family, so we're able to call certain people by name mm-hmm. um, and based on the fact that he and I had had a, a very good track record in terms of my uh, professional representation of him through the years mm-hmm. he was he he considered he values my opinion. How
1: many cases did you work with him on? two, two or three span of span of
0: span of a few years He several years, three. yeah. And uh, we've, we've we've you know he's prevailed uh, in those instances. So you you
1: you helped them beat those cases.
0: Ah, well, you know I just say the government <laughs> wasn't able to prove what they were ha- what they were trying to prove. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah I'm using lingo. <laughs> lingo. <laughs> lingo. lingo but right? you you right. you
1: you did your job as a defense attorney right. and 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 showed the the problems with the case. And he was between, prevailed. Yeah. In
0: between those cases. We'd maintain a relationship. a relationship. He'd call, he'd text, you know, stuff like that. I'd worked on stuff for his family and to like civil stuff for his family and, and So you
1: were like the family lawyer.
0: Exactly correct.
1: And so that day you were in his phone, you yes. were the guy that he called and you got the job done.
0: Which is why his sister was texting me. Please tell him to come out. I mean it was it was a familial sort of effort. Um once I got on the phone, like the, the the family was texting yeah. me and so it was What did um, you say? What did you say? Jerry, we talked about a lot of stuff, you know, and you're trying things to see which thing sort of seems to be working. Mm -hmm. I wanted to never sound like law enforcement, right? Because it dawned on me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What I heard on TV was they've been talking to him for hours. Yeah. Right? So come out of the house and peacefully surrender sounds a little bit ridiculous because I know they've been saying that for four and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do I say the same thing, the same sentiment and sound like... Um, Like I'm not part of that crew. Like you're the family lawyer or the family friend that you've been. Correct. And so we just started, you know, talking about life. Like life. Listen, life for you may be changed, my man. It may have changed, quite frankly. Um, And you may never breathe free air again. All Let me just, let's go right there. And I said, you know, I'm never going to BS you. You know, and I said it exactly, you know, Mm -hmm. the expletive. But you got children. You got a 16-year-old son. You have a teenage boy. And do you want your legacy to be your boy watch you get slumped on national TV by police officers because you want to go out in a blaze of glory? Is that what you want for your kids? And so we went that way. Father to father. That Father to father. You know, it's big, it's more than you now because you've done enough. If, if if what they're saying that you did, you in fact did, you've done enough to ruin your current circumstance. Let's talk about your children now. You got a two-day-old, at the time you had a two-day-old daughter. Ah. <sighs> Right. Forty eight hours old. His child's mother still in the hospital, you know, recovering from uh, uh, having given birth. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about all those other things. It didn't make sense to me to talk about him because I felt like they had beat that horse to death already. Yeah. Although I really wasn't listening. The TV was kind of on mute. But I just assumed that this is what you've been talking about now in the course of the conversation. Yeah. The hostage negotiator would break into the line. And hey, this is you know officer so and so and I want a hostage negotiator. and it sounded so mechanical and robotic and police like I, I wanted to not sound that way, yeah, you know because I'd heard so that you had multiple voices coming in with different in cadences out. correct correct wow. different agendas, different cadences, uh different energy, you know, when the voice got into the phone call and I would I had the benefit of seeing which one he responded to, which one he didn't. And quite frankly, didn't respond to any, you know, except the conversation he and I had going. And maybe because, you know, nothing special about me, but maybe because I was a fresh set of ears, because I hadn't been on the phone with you for the past four hours. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's why he And talked he to trusted me. you. He definitely trust me, definitely. Yeah. And 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 we talk, you know, very urban in that moment. It was no law, it was no it was just two guys in the barbershop, like that kind of conversation. Yeah. Um, and when he would get too far left, I would, you know, I would, I would, to be perfectly truthful, would you, Sherry, cuss him out, you know? And I don't know if this is in the hostage negotiator playbook. <laughs> like maybe you're not supposed to curse the person on the other end out, you know? But I was not going to be uh, uh, held hostage on that phone, you know, playing with you. You called me, right? yeah, and like sort of put me, put my life in a whole different. Because you didn't know that was him. No, I had no idea. I had this. no idea. Yeah, no idea this was you. You called my phone, and so at some point, I even asked him. Why would you do this to me? And why would you do this to me? You know, you and I have a a, a professional and a social affection for one another. Why would you do this to me? Why would you call me on the phone but then refuse to come out so I can watch you get killed on TV? And I told him, I'm hanging up the phone. I'm hanging up. I'm not going to be on this phone with you, and I'm not going to – I said, I'm going to turn the TV off, and I'm going to hang up this phone because I'm not going to listen to you and watch you get killed that, that could that could scar you for life, right? Like, yeah. I thought, why would you call him? This is a friend to a friend, and so I I imagine in the days after I've had to think about it. These yeah. are the things that perhaps hostage negotiators don't have that intimate connection with the person on the other end, and so professionally you want to do your job. I, I suppose as a negotiator, yeah, you want to do your job, and you don't want to lose anyone, as they call it, like a lost one. You don't want to yeah. lose anyone, but I don't want my friend to get killed. Yeah, you know, and whether he has to spend. Uh, a little bit of time sometime or all the time in jail better for his family that he be alive
1: because it's almost like when you're in that position six police officers you got SWAT team I talked to a gentleman who lives literally he was watching the whole thing out his back window because he lived like right behind and the cops did not uh, evacuate his home I mean he's he's seeing this he's him and his wife are trapped in there. Yes, yes. The gunshot's going off. I mean, you're in this position. It's almost like you can't
0: undo it. No, no, you can't. And I'd already resigned to the fact in my own mind yeah. that the person in that house is going to be killed before the night is over, before I knew who it was. Yeah. And uh, everyone who's close to me, you know, who, who, who we discussed this with on that day, yeah. we said, boy, that fella's, you know, he's not going to make it out alive. Yeah. And so... Because people felt like the police had every right because he was
1: armed with a semi-automatic right. automatic weapon, sure. basically shooting, and multiple cops, the largest number at one time right. we, in modern history of course. got shot. And so, you know, I mean, and it was still happening. It, rounds it, of it, shots. It,
0: I, I, when we were watching at the four o'clock hour, no one knew, at least not no one on my side of my house. No, yeah. We didn't know how many gunmen there were. Yeah. One, multiple. But what what was clear was that the shooter or shooters were not going peacefully. That that was very clear. And so I said, well, you know, the Philadelphia police are a rough bunch, you know, rough and tumble bunch of cops. They're not going to go quietly. This is going to end one way. I only see this end in one way, especially when I heard multiple officers shot. I said, this is only going to end one way. He wasn't coming out. Right. So, and he still was shooting. And, well, somebody was. Somebody. You know? That's true. Right. Somebody,
1: somebody was, was shooting. True, true, true. Somebody al- allegedly was shooting. Well, so. we, well, we know somebody was shooting. Somebody that we was know, shooting. Yeah. You know?
0: But, and I said, they are going to storm this particular property and this is not going to go well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I. Because there was multiple people taken out of the house. Correct. Multiple people
1: taken right. out. We right. don't know who, what, what. Listen, it's, I mean, it's multiple were, It's
0: co defendants, multiple co defendants. Right. Multiple people were taken out the house. Officers were literally falling out of the house. It was such a chaotic scenario, but after things sort of settled and yeah. there was the official standoff. Yeah, uh, I said, you know, I'm in a, in a group chat with some guys uh, from the church. I said, listen, you know, this is. Everybody was watching it and commenting on a little men's group chat, and I said, this is not going to end well, and I'm not going to watch this man I get killed on TV. So, uh, but you know, some of the um, morbid curiosity gets to you, yeah. and I tune back in a little bit later. Then I will go away from it and tune back in a little later. But as night fell, I'm saying, this thing's still going on. He's still, yeah. he's still messing with this guy. You know, you're so, so... And then, of course, the phone rang. And then there you go. You're thrust
1: in the middle of it. Right. And and you were a police officer. Yes, ma'am. And so did your police officer skills
0: come in handy? I'm, no, no. I, I, it may be, but not in... I, I didn't click a switch. I'll say that. I feel like my human... Like, I know how to talk to yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so wherever... I think in order to be an effective police officer, you do have to have that human trait, knowing how to speak to people and defuse and de-escalate situations with your mouth. That's your greatest weapon when you're a police officer. You shouldn't have to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you have to go to your sidearm, it's because your mouth didn't work. You know, that's how I view it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I like to think I had that when I was a police officer, which is Mm -hmm. why I had a successful career in that regard. And then, you know, that's just sort of what kicked in. And it's a lot easier to do that when I'm not talking to a total stranger. Yeah. You know, so when I'm speaking to somebody who I know, it just sort of gave me it gave me uh, tools to to discuss. And
1: what did you think when he came out? Uh, Basically pretty okay.
0: Mm, Well, my heart was beating very rapidly when when he was coming out, because I'll I'll say this to you. The energy uh, on that at that scene was palpable. Uh, with uh, testosterone. You know, it was very palpable when I walked through that particular uh, location, all those police officers. Let me say this to you. Police officers, the ones who we call, and not not necessarily patrol officers, but I'm talking about Special Weapons and Tactics, which is a unit that I was a part of. I mm-hmm. was on SWAT. And some of these, uh, these units, these specialty units, don't get as much action as folks would think. Okay? Yeah. Because these sorts of things don't happen often. Right? And so... When everybody is called to task, everybody's on deck, it was almost like, oh, here we go. It was it was just palpable that the people wanted some action. You know, I, I don't know any other, you know, more eloquent way mm-hmm. to say it, but it was very palpable to me, especially when six of your colleagues, six of your, your brothers, their, that's my point, get shot because in this society, police officers tend to be a little gun shy now because everything's on camera. Citizens are watching that sort of thing here. Anything that's done will very likely be justified as a result of six police officers being shot and hospitalized and taken on fire. So people, the energy was just like, please give us the word, give us the green light. And Commissioner Ross would not do that.
1: As a former police officer who was on SWAT, who was in these situations previously, what type of restraint does it take to say, to not give the word, despite the fact that, So many people were shot. I mean, we've never heard of anything like this.
0: Never. I've never heard of such a thing. And I'll tell you it was, um, and there may be a couple of reasons for that, right? Because initially the reports were hostages inside that were also police officers. It might have been tactical to take into consideration their safety. Obviously, Mm -hmm. um, let's make sure the entire place is cleared of even other suspects so that they're not injured. If they have no part, no hand in the shooting, right? So, there might have been a lot of other tactical considerations beyond just simple restraint.
1: Yeah, and you know? and and the good thing is no police officer was killed. Correct. Which I think takes things to a
0: whole nother level. It, I think it really does. Those are the sorts of things that we also uh, said on the phone. You know, that was said on the phone um, to Maurice. You know, no officers were killed. There's no reason to. You know, uh, th- this was the hostage negotiator yeah. would say, and I didn't know if that was the best tactic. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But I didn't want to talk about any of that. You know, we talked about food and, like you know, we talked about a lot of other stuff trying to sort of soften him up to to surrender himself. But he was always very concerned that if I present myself to the door, they are going to kill me, regardless of what you say, they're going to kill me.
1: Yeah. He just felt like if I try to walk
0: out,
1: I'm just going to get popped right there. And no, no talking. Nothing.
0: That's correct. And which is why he said, well, I need you to be here. They won't do that if you're here. And I'm thinking, well why 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 do, why are you think why would they, why would you think they won't do it if I'm standing there?
1: You yeah. know Yeah. But then now you would be a witness because you would have well, to see that well, if Maurice, it did the happen. whole world
0: is watching. Yeah. People in Belgium are watching. Well you need me why why you need me on Carlisle Street, like everybody else is there. Yeah. You know, but yeah. I didn't say that to him. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, and what you know, whatever uh, However I've moved him or affected him through the years, it's been in a positive way. Yeah. And he says if if you're here, this can be a reality. And at some point, Commissioner Ross gave us a you know, a finite time that we have to, that he has to be out. Otherwise he had to turn it over to tactical guys. Now there's been reports that the tear gas is what did it. Yeah. Now, let's, let's, let's just say for the sake of arguendo, Maurice was shooting, for the sake of discussion. Do you think that a person who has hundreds of rounds of ammunition an assault rifle better than most police officers carry, uh, seemingly proficient with it, I might add, who has taken up a position for a full workday of not coming out and barricading himself inside, not allowing that place to be stormed either through the back or the front or the or the roof. Do you think, because his eyes were burning, that is what caused him to put down his pistol, raise his hands in, in universal surrender yeah. mode, and walk out the front door? Because his eyes were burning? Is that what you think? It was a decision. It, that was a. It was a. Very, it was obviously a decision.
1: How do people look at this? Yes, people were shot. Nobody died. It could have been way worse. How does this affect the case?
0: The surrender. Yeah. Not very much. Does not. Okay. Not very much. It turns it from a capital case. You know, which obviously it would have been a capital case if he shot a police officer and the police officer died. That would have been one that um, I'm sure people would have been petitioning Mr. Krasner to make this a capital case. Yeah. But outside of that, which we're talking about the penalty phase, it doesn't change much because obviously uh, people are calling for blood in terms of uh, um, they, obviously no one uh, in the police ranking file wants him to see the light of day again.
1: Yeah. And you and just so you were also a former prosecutor. Yes. <laughs> so you so you just right. said which was earlier you were like yeah I've you know usually. You know, as a defense attorney, I have prosecutors and law enforcement. You've been in every seat.
0: I have. I have. But the only seat I've never been in is the one that you. Oh, (laughs) right. right. (laughs) (laughs) I applied for all of those positions. (laughs) I did not apply for the one that he put me in. Right. Which was answering that phone and talking to somebody who I refer to as nephew. Call him Neff. You understand? Yeah. Like that. That was a position I've never been in. In uh, in the forty plus years I've been walking the earth, I've never been in that position, and pray to never be in it again.
1: Wow! And so, are you going to be representing his him in the in this case?
0: No, no. He he deserves uh, a different kind of representation, and and what I mean by that is the amount of resources that it's going to take to adequately represent him mm-hmm. in terms of experts and ballisticians, yeah. uh, mitigation specialists, and um, Maurice is not a person who's wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, like I said, I've known his family. They are not wealthy. And so he's going to need the resources of perhaps our system when we give those to people who are, in fact, indigent. Um, He's going to need those resources to adequately be represented. Um, I would be doing him a disservice, not able to carry that full freight on my dime in terms of all of those things he'll need. You know, I would not save your life and then give you poor representation. That makes no sense. Yeah. So he needs uh, the benefit of having those resources.
1: People have said all sorts of things about this case and your part in it though, uh, is, is like a shining light
0: in the, in the case. Well, to some, I mean, you know, I've gotten death threats, you know, um, really? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They, they email them. I mean, these people are, this is, this is really, I mean, people, email, I mean, when I say email them, email them with their name and, 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 phone number. Um, from
1: you. So you getting, you've gotten death threats.
0: James and Susan, that's correct. Um, uh, uh, emailed uh, through my website and left the phone number. I called it to make sure it was real, and James answered the phone and and said much of what he said in the email. You know, a bunch of uh, 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 you know negative expletives and and, and uh, racially charged language, and I was all sorts of MFs and, and black this and that, and they should have put a bullet in your head. And oh, okay, all right, Jay, that's how James felt about it, and he was speaking on behalf of he and his wife Susan. I got mail from Wyoming. Um, uh, because it, you know it was postmarked, I got well from postcards. You know, uh, it's it, so everyone is not taking it as a shining, like a beacon, a beacon of light. You know, um,
1: you got death threats. Yeah, this is,
0: for for literally saving life. That's how. Listen, after I had time to think about this later, and 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 my client and my friend hugged me and told me thank you. So Maurice hugged. Correct. You. Correct. Uh oh. um I saw him at the jail and he cried and he and he just told me thank you. And we didn't do a lot of talking about the case because I, I told you I'm not gonna be representing him. But I went and saw him and, and I let him know that I would not be representing him. I, I I owed him that courtesy to let him know. And uh I hugged him again. You know, that's how the conversation went. And in those moments when I have this man crying and and some people might say, you know, well, who cares if he's crying? But I, I care that he was crying. Yeah. And um, I had to have a conversation with my family. You know, listen, I'm getting these threats. The first one or two, I just sort of eh, eh. but after three or four, and now people are you 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 wasting postage on me? Like you're actually like putting things in the U.S. Postal Service and having it sent to me. So I have the girls in the office now. They have to open things with gloves. I mean, it's like a real crazy. You know, I people oh my are thinking, god, right, right, because of because I just answered the phone and told and 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 begged Commissioner Ross to give me some time to talk to this young man and. Nobody died. That is now apparently worthy of my crucifixion and death. Are you nervous at all? Not at all. You I know mean, I'm SWAT trained. I, I'm, built for, <laughs> I'm built for it all. <laughs> I'm built for it all. <laughs> I'll just say that. Just know you ready. Yeah, don't listen. come. Don't L- come over here. You like to do what not. to I'm saying to me. I'm a surgeon with it. I'll just leave it at that. So no, I, I believe I, so you. I have, sh- no con- <laughs> I have no concerns in that regard at all.
1: Oh. My God, I'm so, like, floored by that. Right, Does, I, that, yeah. And are they still, do you expect more?
0: I mean, it's, so every week you think the case might die down a little bit, but then this week we had, you know, sort of a rebound, right, with Commissioner Ross, and then, so, I, I don't know. I didn't expect the last postcard I got, which was just this past Friday from the folks in Wyoming. Yeah. You know, so, you know, uh, I don't travel in Wyoming very often, so, you know, yeah. you
1: know. So you think you got, like, a half a dozen or so? About about that. About half a dozen death threats. And so hopefully it'll die down. (laughs) It'll
0: die down. It'll die down. It's cool.
1: Yeah. And so but you are motivated because uh, I read on your website you have a nice video. Thank you. On there. And one of the things you said is that you know when you were in the prosecutor's office and as a police officer you saw folks who were sliding through the cracks of the system and a lot of times they could have been you.
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I really live by, you know, that saying that my grandmother and my mother say often, you know, but for the grace of God, there go. I, you know, and I did not understand that initially when I was a kid, but the older you get and the longer you live, you know, you realize that uh, every bad thing that could have befall you befell you, it it didn't, it didn't, you know, and um, I don't see myself taking up arms and uh, uh, doing anything violent like that, but the circumstances that led to like whatever those building blocks and those circumstances were, those ingredients that led to a person snapping in that particular way. I'm sure I've been exposed to some of those growing up in, a, in an urban community in a single parent household. I'm sure I've been exposed to some of those things. Yeah, you know, mercy was shown on me, and somehow I, you know, I, I made it and went a different direction. But I don't ever take for granted that you know, but for some people looking out for me, but for you know, a community helping to raise me, that I could have been in that particular spot. I don't take for granted, so I don't look down on a Maurice or anybody like a Maurice. I don't look down on any of my clients. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. while, you know, I don't do what they do or, you know, I've never been charged with the things they've been charged with, I keep it in the front of my mind, not the back of my mind, in the front of my mind. And it helps me talk to folks and it helps me relate They relate back to me. And so what do you want people to remember about folks like
1: Maurice? You won't be representing him. Right. But, you know, it's going to be a very public trial. His face is going to be everywhere. What do you want people to remember about Maurice Hill?
0: They're going to remember what they want to because most of them met him this way. Right. Most of them met him in this particular circumstance. But what I would implore people to do is to ask questions as to why. Ask questions. Be your own investigator. Ask questions. Don't just take what you're being spoon fed. And in respect to, I'm speaking to a a highly regarded journalist in this moment. Mm -hmm. But don't just take what you're spoon fed by journalists in the media. Do your own. Do your own research. And what I mean is, what led up to this? If in fact he did, he did what he's being alleged to have done? What? Ask questions. How did he get here? I'll just take one second and say this to you. Yeah, I find it very interesting that uh, when a shooter. Uh, uh, of another persuasion for Maurice was taken alive. Yeah. There were no death threats sent to his attorney and the media instantly started talking about the social factors that plagued that young man. The fact that he played too much Grand Theft Auto, the fact that he had uh, been from a broken home. They instantly went Didn't to Didn't have that. a father. yeah, Didn't well, have a dad. Yeah. Right. And so the moment Maurice is taken alive, you want his attorney with a bullet in his head and you instantly say, well, what is this animal doing on the street? Wait a minute. Time. We're talking about a human being. Why aren't we addressing those same social factors that we were doing for someone very similarly situated to ex- – well, not so similarly because Maurice didn't kill anyone. That other person had taken lives, had actually taken human lives. Yeah. And so I want people to uh, – uh, if you're going to villainize them, you're going to villainize them. But what I would say is don't just get on the bandwagon. Do your homework, do your research, investigate, find out what the social factors were and if they mean anything to you while you're forming your opinion.
1: Did you feel like he was in his right mind during that time? Because we and we just did a show on shootings, mass shootings and, and mental illness.
0: A mental illness. You know,
1: and he had repeated, you know, you you represented him in, in criminal cases. I, obviously, I don't think he
0: was in his right mind. Yeah. And, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because this is a Maurice Hill who's respected the process before. He's been arrested, he got an attorney, he won his case, and he did that over and over. And I I even read that he had been a federal, he'd helped federal prosecutors in the
1: past as well.
0: Right. Yeah. So he's a person who's managed to get out of uh, squirrely situations, either by helping himself or by hiring an attorney. and, and, And that federal business wasn't on my watch. Yeah. But he and I, you know, prevailed on the cases in which I did represent him. Yeah. Never during any of those cases did he pick up a pistol and decide to shoot it out with the cops. So you have to ask yourself, was he in crisis? I, at least I asked myself, was mm-hmm. he in a mental health crisis? Mm-hmm. Was he in a space where he had been declining? And you've
1: known him for years. For years. Yeah.
0: But, but because he had no open matters, we don't talk every day. Yeah. you know. So, the But last you've never th- seen him like this, ever? Never. 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 Last time I saw him was two years ago, and i never seen him like this.
4: Yeah.
1: Wow. And so as we wrap this up, I mean, this are you going to become I got to mention, I saw you on Free Meek. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You were like people who don't know what Free Meek is. It's like the documentary about Meek Mill. I just shifted. Yes. 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 But I saw
0: you there, too. So you were like your your face is around. I'm I'm working. I'm working. Um, They were they were the the, the editors uh, were calling from California and I was really sort of behind the scenes giving them uh, information about Pennsylvania law, how things work in Philadelphia court. So I was sort of... Court, the, police, right. everything. You so could, I, well, yeah. I was the plug on the phone. They called me later to come in and have a sit down. Um, so they were just sort of doing fact checking, that sort of thing with me on the phone. And I was happy doing that, just giving some information. But then they said, well, you know, like you, you can talk a little bit. Come on and have a sit down with us.
1: So my last question for you, will you become the, 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 the take in, the bring in guy?
0: <laughs> I pray not. I, maybe I won't even answer my phone after six anymore. Now I'm joking. I <laughs> answer my phone. I, I just um, yeah, listen. There was a black police officer who said to me, "This sets a bad precedent." And I said, "Well, you know, expound on that a little bit." To which he responded, and it's a friend of mine. We were just casual conversation, and he said, um, "The fact that he wasn't killed sends a bad message." Now this is a, uh, uh, and I said, "Wow, that's how you really feel." And that, we we talked for like an hour and a half. Um, about that statement and what it and what it meant, and why he and I are on—we have a a very stark, yeah, you, you know, we couldn't be on op- more opposite ends. Um, that's how some people feel, quite frankly, that the message should have been sent: if you resist violently in this particular way, we we put you down, you know, like a dog, we put you down, and despite the fact that we can take you out and make you go through our legal system, that's that, that's too good for you, um, and. Uh, yeah, and I just never thought, you know, I'd be in a day and time when this is this is what the prevailing thought, you know, is in the land. But here we are.
1: Here we are. Well, Shaka Johnson, uh, defense attorney, ma'am. the takedown man, the, <laughs> the take and break in. <laughs> I mean,
4: seriously,
0: I mean, I mean, you uh, marvelous work. I, I really
4: appreciate that. And so that. many
0: people appreciate that. I respect you. So I respect that coming from you. I really, I mean that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Yes, ma'am. Next up, a Bucks County woman who helps
1: strangers stave off depression through hugs. People crave that kind of touch. Her heart motivation and its wide-reaching impact. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to check out the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you got to do is search Flashpoint KYW. And we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one Bucks County woman is trying to change the world in a positive way. By hugging people. On Valentine's Day in 2014, she got a group together to spread love to those who needed it. And since then, they have hugged people in Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Portland, Oregon, and even Ireland. Here to tell us more about Hug Mobsters armed with love is founder Edie
6: Weinstein. Welcome to Flashpoint, Edie. Thank you. Thank you, Cherry. And you are a wonderful hugger, so I got to experience that before we even started the interview.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. 5'11 adds, you know, I have long
6: arms, yeah. so it works. <laughs> and I'm 5'4", so thank you for coming down to my height. I appreciate that.
1: And so, you know, it all started on a day of love. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Yeah.
6: Um, I brought a group of friends, there were 10 of us total, we met at 30th Street Station, and where thousands of people come and go on a daily basis. And I thought, Valentine's Day shouldn't just be celebrated one day a year. And Valentine's Day isn't just about couple love. It's about world love. So at noon, one of our friends, um, Ron, started playing the song Give a Little Bit. And we unleashed ourselves at in, in th- 30th Street Station. And we asked people, <coughs> you know, hovered tackle, over people. Yeah, right, yeah. We didn't tackle anybody. And we said, would you like a hug? And if they said yes, we would hug them. And if they said no, we'd say thank you. And the interesting thing is when people say no, they usually say, nah, I'm good. And I say, I know you're good, but hug somebody. So in an hour, we must have hugged a few hundred people. One of the people that we hugged approached us. He was an Iraq war vet who was the only survivor of his platoon, and he had survivor's guilt. He said, can I join you? So we gave him a free hug sign, and he was off to the races. And I thought, we've really got something here. Hugs are more than just a fun thing, pat on the back thing to do. It's a way of saving people's lives. Now I don't know whether we saved his life. Maybe who knows? And I have no idea where he is. But, I, you know, I bless him every day that I think about this because he was the impetus for me to continue doing it. Friends started calling us hug mobsters, you know, mm-hmm. like flash mob, hug mob. And I said, ooh, mobsters, guns, drugs, mafia. I don't think so. So I added the tagline, armed with love. And another one of our friends that was there designed the logo. So it's a heart with little hands sticking out. It's a way of embracing the world. So a few months later, on my way home from the gym at age 55, I had a heart attack, totally unexpected. Yeah. And as part of my cardiac rehab, I walked around Doylestown, which is the town near where I live, and I said, why don't I combine the walking with the hugging? Because hugs are heart-friendly, not just cardiac-friendly, but heart-to-heart connection. And then I thought, okay, let's take it on the road. So I've done it in Philly, D.C., Virginia. I, um, I hug at my polling place on election day. <laughs> because we need it you know <laughs> and when I hug people I don't know who they voted for but I encourage them just be kind just spread the love and what did you learn during this process about yourself I don't I don't know about you but I don't like it when people say no but I realize that everybody has body sovereignty some people are not comfortable hugging and it's not a personal rejection yeah and there's some people like where I'm at an event where it's really hot people don't sometimes don't want to hug because they're sweaty so I say okay're okay with a virtual hug And they are, or a fist bump, or a handshake. I also learned that when I work with children, I'll say to the parent, if it's okay with you and okay with your child, can I hug your child? And if the parent says yes and the kid says no, I don't touch the child. And I say it's a teaching tool, and I say it in front of the parent, that nobody touches you without your permission. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I hated having my cheeks pinched when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. You know, and people would say, oh, go hug in so-and-so, and and you didn't feel like it. And you're allowed to say no. Um, I also realized that I'm... More outgoing than I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up with a a father who grew up in South Philly who Mm -hmm. knew everybody. And every place we'd go, he'd run into somebody. So I'm definitely my father's daughter. And then what did you learn about other people? I learned that they were hungry for touch, that most people grow up in homes where touch is either limited, non-existent, assaultive slash abusive, sexual or coercive. Very few people grew up in the kind of home that I did where touch was plentiful. I consent, but plenty, you know nobody left our house without hugs and kisses and an I love you. We also have skin hunger, which is just as important to meet as food hunger. Our skin is our single largest organ. So when babies aren't getting enough nurturing touch, they fail to thrive. So do adults. Depression thrives on isolation. So when I hug people, some people have said that's the first hug I've had in years. Patricia Gallagher, who was a guest on your show, took a bunch of us to um, I think it was a veteran shelter, I think in Kensington, and I did a, a little mini hug workshop there. And some of the men said I have not been touched for twenty years in you know, in a loving, nurturing, non sexual way. Yeah. So that's what I've learned too, that people crave that kind of touch and it brings people together.
1: And so why do you think our we've moved away from this? like you said non-sexual mm-hmm. loving touch of mm-hmm. a hug.
6: Well, I think some of it's a state of the world. Most people are so fragmented by what's going on politically, and I don't even call this a political anything, but I think people feel so isolated and scared. Mm-hmm. And this is for me too. This is not purely altruistic. I mean, I'm a social worker. I'm a minister. So by by profession, I'm in the service fields. But this helps me Yeah, And it's not about the quantity. You mentioned how many people, thousands probably. But for me, it's about quality. When I hug somebody, I'm fully present with them. And it helps this workaholic slow down. Slow down. (laughs) And so how can people support you? Well, they can hug wherever they are. If they want to learn more about organizing events, they can contact me. My website is www.opti-mystical.com. So I invite people to see the possibility in connecting heart to heart, hug to hug, with whoever is out there, and you know, in the world. And hug yourself. Make it, oh, the other thing, Virginia Satir was a psychologist who said that in order to have just basic survival, we need four hugs a day. If I don't do this, I don't get four hugs a day. Yeah, I don't know about you, but. Yeah. So yeah,
1: yeah. I I like hug a lot of the guests that come good, in here. Good. I steal hugs from from from, from people I interview yeah. every day. Oh yeah. it's
6: not stealing, it's it's offering it's sharing. So you don't have to steal it. You got it. <laughs> yeah. So I wanna say
1: thank you to Edie Weinstein. She's the founder of Hug Mobsters Armed with Love. Good luck out here. Thank and I'm you. sure you have a lot more hugging to do.
6: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I thank you so much. I, you know, I'll give you a virtual <laughs> hug across the table. Virtual but, hug. <laughs> but once it's over, I'll give you another one on the way up.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. To quote Jamaican poet and musician, Muta Baraka, slavery is not African history. Slavery interrupted African history. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.